A few days ago, there was another air disaster. And some 150 people who got up that morning expecting to go on about their lives and do their jobs and see their loved ones at the other end of that flight instead had a few brief moments of terror when they realized that the plane was plunging and there was nothing apparently that anybody, including the captain, could do about it. It captured everybody's attention, and as they always do when an airliner goes down, amazingly talented people are coming, in this case, from all over the world and combing through the wreckage with this single question, how did this happen and how can we keep it from ever happening again. I think disasters compel human attention. I've always been fascinated by stories like the one that unfolded in Everest in 1996 when some of the world's leading mountaineers led paying customers to their death. They summited, but they could not come down. Today we're going to look at such wreckage. And it's going to be hard for some of you. It's hard for me. Between services, somebody asked me, when does the pain of what my spouse did stop? And I had no good answer. Before we look at how the disaster occurred, I want, you to, take, I want to take you to ground zero. I want to take you to the moment when David begins his recovery. This disaster story is striking because it involves a man that God's prophet Samuel said was a man after God's own heart. Samuel, who spoke on behalf of God, with God's authority, with God's truth, said that God had looked for a man who was after God's own heart, who would do everything that God said, and he found in David such a heart. What a surprise then to read in Psalm 51 the Bible says this, it begins with the subtitle, with, it begins with the title of the psalm, which is actually part of Scripture. That wasn't edited by the editor, that was part of God's inspired word. And Psalm 51 bears this title, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David, a man after God's own heart, found his life in such, a re- in such a mess and in such a wreck that he wrote this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit.'" 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be sacrificed on your altar. David, what happened? Why would you, a man after God's own heart, refer to blood guilt? Why would you speak of your own life as a continual parade of shame and guilt that you cannot escape from? Why would you picture God as someone who in judgment and discipline to bring you back to himself has broken your bones? Why would you of all people have to, be, have to pray for God to restore to you the joy of salvation? Because of what David did one afternoon recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Will you go with me there please? 2 Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. The Bible has been describing David's complete success. The flight of enemy armies ahead of them. The shattering of alliances that were built against them, around them. And then we find this. Second Samuel 11, in the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that's his general, and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. We've been going chronologically through the Bible across the great stories of the Bible. And one of the Bible studies, one of the Bible tips I've given you as you're reading the Bible, read it more slowly than you are accustomed to. And when you're reading a story, slow down and notice the details. If the narrator is giving you details, that's his clue to the reader to slow down and pay attention because important things are happening. It's like a movie maker putting things in slow motion. If you're watching a movie and slowly the gun comes up and slowly it starts bucking in our hero's hand and smoke starts curling slowly out of the barrel and sometimes if it's a John Woo movie, you can even see the bullet leave the barrel. And then on the other side of the screen, the villain starts crumpling and those incredibly slow 15-second bullets finally arrive on target. The director is using a technique, hoping you're not lost in your popcorn, but if you are, to give you a chance to notice, he's saying, do you see this? This matters. This is the moment. You can't miss this. That's what's happening in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. The kings have gone to war. It's hard to conceive in our culture of a time when nations went to war on schedule, but that's how it was in the ancient Near East. It was a time of constant aggression. 
And the kings had decided in springtime is when they would go forward to defend their borders or to try to expand them. In that time when David should have been with his armies in the field, he sent his general. And the narrator slows down and nods to the reader and says, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof in the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And that should have stopped David right there. That should have been the end of this story. That should have moved us into a different story in a, the life of a man after God's own heart because the answer he got would have been perfectly understood. You see, Uriah the Hittite is called Uriah the Hittite because he's from a foreign nation. He's not from Israel. He's a convert to the one true God. And he's not just any man. He is one of David's mighty men. David went to war with tens of thousands of men, men so numerous that they, I'm sure, became anonymous to their king. But Uriah was special. There's a whole section of the Bible dedicated to men like Uriah. Uriah and only a few other men are named among David's mighty men. There were only 37 of them among an army of tens of thousands. In other words, Uriah was in a group more selective than the Navy SEALs. His name, his exploits, his courage, and his faith were known to his king. And David, who had no business out on the roof, who should have been with his army and with his general near Uriah, his trusted soldier, should never have looked on his soldier's naked wife, but he did. And he didn't stop. He said, who is that? He said, well, king, that's Uriah's wife. And he should have stopped, but he didn't. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Real trouble. Uriah's in the field. When Uriah, this mighty soldier, returns home and finds that his wife is pregnant after this long campaign, he knows there's going to be trouble. And David knows he has a political scandal on his hands. What follows is one of the saddest stories of hypocrisy, I think, in the Old Testament. David sends for Uriah to come home. He gives him a hero's welcome under the guise of, him, of inquiring for a military report. And then he says, go on home. But Uriah is more honorable than David. Verse 10, when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. The foreigner mentions the ark of God first. That's a testimony to his faith. He says the visible symbol of God's presence among us is in a tent. My general and my fellow soldiers are in the field in harm's way. I'm not doing it, king. Not even with your permission, it's not honorable. 
So David does something even more deplorable. He invites him back to the palace, and this time he gets him drunk. Because everybody knows alcohol lowers inhibitions. And the man's been at war, and the man's been stressed. And the man has a beautiful wife at home. David reasons, surely if I get him drunk, he'll surrender this soldierly honor of not going in, going to his home and getting in bed with his wife, and I'll be able to cover my sin. But not even that was sufficient. Uriah lay on the ground. And David made a terrible calculation that he had no choice. And he sent orders back to Joab in Uriah's own hand. And here they are. In the letter he wrote, verse 15, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. You understand what's happening here? It's murder. It won't look like it. It'll look like a casualty of war. It will look like a time of great mourning and one of the mightiest among them fell by the sword. But it's not. It's murder. Put him in the thick of it where men defend themselves shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield. And when it's really dangerous, have everybody retreat from Uriah. And I can almost imagine a man who was accustomed to victory looking around wide-eyed realizing that this time he wasn't going home. And feeling the first wound enter his body, not knowing that it was actually delivered by his treacherous king. Joab knew enough about war. He sent, home, he sent word back to David. Even now, even though it was David's orders being concerned that David might be upset. And David said to the messenger, verse 25... Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. It's hard to believe that David ever pronounced or wrote those words. David, his king, shrugged his shoulders over his faithful man's death and said, well, that's war. He knew it was a tough job when he took it. Don't be discouraged, Joab. Don't let the men be afraid because one of their mighty have fallen. Rally the troops. Be encouraged. Finish the job. And they did. And nearly a year went by before Nathan came and spoke to David and told him a parable that he should have recognized himself in. How did David get himself to this point? Here's why. Folks, sin grows from a sense of entitlement. Sin lures you through the belief that you deserve it, that you've earned it, that it's okay, that you can walk away from your responsibility this one time, that you, this one time you can relax your guard, you can ignore your job, you can forget that you're a father or a husband or a wife or a mother, and most of all, that you're a disciple of Jesus, that just this one time, because you've been through so much and you've been so faithful and you've worked so hard and you've been so misunderstood and so mistreated and nobody appreciates you, that this one time it will be okay. Sin grows in the soil of entitlement that you think you deserve it. Here's, James, here's the book of James's explanation of how sin comes into a person's heart. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, 
I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, you may think that may go without saying, but let me tell you, I've had more than one person in more than one country tell me that they are going to do something like commit adultery because, and I quote, God would have me to be happy. That happens. That's real. Entitlement has blinded a person. Entitlement, the sense of earning it, have blinded them to reality, have blinded them to themselves, to their family, most of all to their God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Where then does it come from? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And those Greek words refer to wild animals like fish being lured and caught. It's desire that draws you away. God tests you and teaches you, but God never tempts you. God never solicits you toward evil. On the contrary, the Bible says God, along with temptation, always provides a way out. Escape is always in your hand, but your sense of entitlement that you've earned it, that you're tired of being good, that you're tired of doing the right thing, and what difference is it going to make this one time? That sort of self-talk, that sort of self-encouragement toward things that are forbidden to you for your good and for your blessing, they will lure you with the sense of entitlement and bring you down. Nathan did come to David, verse chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. This is perhaps a year later. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Can you see this? This is a pet. I'm sure his kids teased him. Dad, you're overly attached. Good thing you don't raise that little lamb like you raise us. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Here's the heart of the matter. Here's the soil of entitlement. Here's what I'm thinking when I sin. Here's what you're thinking when you sin. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The heart of temptation is despising God. 
The heart of temptation is a personal encounter where I believe that because of my, you fill in the blank, my success, my wisdom, my tenure, my season of life, whether I'm middle-aged or I've earned it or I'm young and it's time for me to do my own thing and step out a little bit, sow my wild oats, have my parties. That sense of entitlement at every age from the youngest from the youngest child who has a concept of God and knows how to obey him and disobey him to the oldest man who is content and settled in his faith, the nature of sin is always the same. It arises from a sense of entitlement, and this is what it produces. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Death. Now listen, I know this isn't a popular thing to say. I know you had a hard week. I know you want to be encouraged. I'm speaking to you about matters literally of life and death. There is no one in this congregation, not one of us, who is incapable of having the same sense of entitlement that infected David that would lead us far from God and welcome disaster into our lives. Not one of us. One Bible teacher I read after this week says, if, if, you, seem, if you think that you're too far removed from David's own actions, examine your own heart a little more closely. And he's right. What sin produces always is death. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. What sin earns, what sin produces, what sin conceives and eventually delivers in this word picture of a child being born and then being fully grown and bringing with him his harvest, it's always death. Sin will kill everything you hold dear. It does not merely wound. It is not content with that. It kills. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross to counter it. He conquered death by death. But what sin will welcome into your life every single time without exception is death. And the unfolding story of David's life tell you that once sin has begun, once that sense of entitlement has taken root and led you into sin, the consequences will begin and they will be out of your control. By the time this sad story was over and before David's life had ended, the consequences that Nathan had foretold as part of God's judgment against the man after his own heart had cost the lives of three of his sons, one of whom raped one of David's daughters and been murdered by his own brother in return for that crime. By the time it was over, a civil war had begun, led by Absalom, one of David's own sons, who publicly slept with his father's wife, perhaps on the very rooftop where the king had first, been, had first seen Bathsheba and been enticed by her. Countless women had been victimized. Innocent women who had no part of this, who made no decisions, were victimized and brutalized and raped and used. And David regained his kingdom by, the, by waging civil war against his own son, against his own wishes. And 20,000 soldiers died in recovering David king, David's kingdom. Murder. Rape. Wholesale death. Those are David's consequences. What does that have to do with you? Simply this. 
When you sin, the consequences may come and the consequences will always be out of your control. If I can be personal with you, I've, I've grown up in ministry. My grandfather was a wicked, blasphemous man, but God reached into our story and brought my grandpa, who had been one of the meanest sailors to ever sail for this nation's navy, brought him to Jesus, and he immediately started preaching. In fact, so immediately that his early sermons were inaccurate. He had Jesus arrested, crucified, and risen again all in the Garden of Gethsemane in one early sermon. <laughs> but God used that. And my, grand, my father was the firstborn into a Christian home. And my father gave me miles of spiritual advantages that my grandfather, though saved, never knew. And I'm telling you all that to tell you I've grown up around great men and women of God. But at least three times a year, I get a message, usually an email, telling me that one of these great saints has fallen. They've walked away from God. They've walked away from their family. They've ruined their marriage. They've embarrassed themselves and everybody who knows them. And it continues to happen again and again and again. Why? Because once entitlement roots itself in your heart, you have no control over the consequences. You don't. That's one way that God asserts his sovereignty and his ruling over life. When the consequences come at his hand, you will have no control over them. And no matter of scheming, no matter of success, no amount of money will be able to save you from consequences that are directed by God. The consequences of adultery are particularly painful. That's why in Proverbs we're invited to to ponder the question of whether a man can scoop fire into his lap and go unburned. That, Solomon says, is what a man does when he decides to commit adultery, thinking there will be no consequences. Why am I telling you this? Because David was lured by his eyes. And every one of you is under constant attack being lured by something. I want to be specific and I want to leave David's story for just a moment and talk to you candidly about a plague that is infecting practically every home. And that is online pornography. David chanced to see a beautiful woman. You can see beautiful people from every nation of the world in just a few seconds. Pornography is so consuming and changing our world and our society that some of the leading activists against online pornography are thoroughly secular people. One of the leading researchers and activists against online pornography, in fact, is an atheist. We've had online pornography just long enough that we're now able to look into the brains of people who have saturated themselves with online pornography. It is literally rewiring the brain. Now, why is that? Because as my mother counseled me when I was a young teenage kid, the Bible gives this wisdom. Whoever sent all sexual sin is against the body. Look with me to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. David should have stopped. He should have made the only he should have taken advantage of the only biblical provision that is ever given in either testament against sexual sin, and that is to run. 
You don't quote Bible verses to it. You don't sing songs. You don't remind yourself of Bible lessons. You get out of there. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That ancient truth, 1,000 years old from 1 Corinthians 6.18, is being displayed in our world in a scale and in a way that nobody ever imagined. One of, the, one of the studies recently attempted about the brain chemistry and the neurological rewiring that takes place in the lives of young college-age men who were addicted to pornography sought a control group. Familiar with scientific studies, you have to have a control group. And the control group in this case would be college-age young men who had not indulged in the regular use of online pornography. And that study failed. Because they could not find college-age young men who did not use online pornography. Now, this story of David is 3,000 years old. He was lured by what seemed like a chance encounter. Understand, mom and dad, the first usage by a boy of online pornography comes in elementary school. It is enticing. It is alluring, and on every level, it invites him or her to see more. And then he's trapped. These secular researchers say, reveal in their report, that they cannot fully explain or imagine the impact of this kind of usage because it's never been done before in human history. We haven't yet fully seen the harvest of what using pornography, which is, after all, film prostitution, is going to bring into the hearts, minds, souls, families, ways of thinking of the young men and women, increasingly young women are catching up, are bringing into their lives. Where does that start? Entitlement. How does it continue? Consequences beyond your control. Now, if this seems foreign and alien and disgusting to you, good, I'm glad. Understand the nature of every kind of sin is to seduce you with the sense of entitlement and then trap you and destroy you with consequences that are beyond your control. What is the hope? Only this. Only what David cried out to God for. Mercy. Go back to the first two verses with me of Psalm 51. David wrote, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And he can. And he will. And he wants to. He wants to. If church is hard for you because you're leading a double life that nobody knows about and you feel like a hypocrite sitting here, hear a man after God's own heart calling out for God's mercy and know this, that he received it. Hear David say to God, God created me a clean heart. Give me again a steadfast spirit. Renew to me the joy of salvation and understand that God did that. 
And David went on to do as he promised and teach his ways to transgressors. In other words, to tell other people who had been so trapped and so destroyed by sin about how much it cost him and to welcome them back into the mercy and the grace of God. He did, and he'll do the same for you. But you have to come out of the shadows. There is no hope and there is no salvation of your own devising. You cannot escape without the mercy and the grace of God. That's why David mentions it in the first line of his cry to God. See, if I took a big vial of black India ink and poured it here in the center of this carpet, the carpet cleaners who were coming next week would look at us with contempt and tell us that we needed to replace that part of the carpet. Couldn't be cleaned. But if I took that same India ink and I went out into the Pacific Ocean and poured it into the depths of the ocean in a split second, it wouldn't matter anymore. That's how vast the mercy is of the mercy of God is in comparison to your sin. You see, the reason Jesus went to the cross, which we will remember this Friday is that Jesus was willing to be treated and to be considered in my place and yours as if he were the murderer, as if he were the pornographer, as if he were the one who couldn't stop looking at pornography, as if he were the one that stole and lied and cheated and destroyed his family. All the grim things that make people think that church is not for them because they never could be welcomed here, those are the very things that put my Savior and yours on the cross. A couple weeks ago, I met a young lady who told me her story in one big headline. She said, sin brought me here. And I thought, you know, this is someone who understands David's broken spirit. And I said, well, can I tell you something? You're in great company. Because maybe not everyone in this congregation would be able to phrase it just that way, but that's every one of our stories. But there's good news. He was nailed to the cross as if he were the guilty party so that you could be free. He was treated as the worst of sinners and endured the very worst of consequences in God's own judgment so that you would never have to. So if you're not absolutely certain that he's your Savior, let me tell you what to do. You run to Jesus and you say, mercy, here's what I've done. I've done this and this and this. Deliver me from blood guilt. I feel the pain of the consequences, God, but they're drawing me back to you. Please forgive me. And he will. His mercy is that deep. The provision of Christ on the cross is that rich. It's that loving. It's that focused on you. And if you're, if you're bound up by this thing, if your Fridays and Saturday nights are very different from your Sunday mornings, you run to Jesus and you tell at least one other person and bring that dark secret out into, the, out into the light where Jesus can deal with it and the Christian community can love you and you can understand that nobody here is that much different from you. Because sin, sin brought us all here. But the mercy of God can save us all. Would you bow your head so we can pray together, please? In just a minute, I'd like you to consider getting that connection card. And if you're really bound up in something... Specifically, whatever it is, but specifically the focus is this morning on your online life. 
if you can't get away from it? Would you privately leave just enough information and so that we know who you are if you're ready to get help? There is help. There is grace. There is accountability. There is encouragement. Most of all, there is forgiveness. But you've got to come into the light. You can't hide anymore. David hid for a year and had no joy in it. Maybe this is your day to come out of hiding. If you're not absolutely certain that Jesus is your Savior, pray to Him. Ask Him right now. You don't need religious ritual. There are no magic words. Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me for my sins. Save me. And He will. And let us know that you've done that, please, on that card. Because we want to share our story with you. We want to help you connect with at least one other person, ideally in a small group people who are growing together. Nobody's going to put you on the spot or make you tell anything that you don't want to told yet. But you need to be in community, in the light, where sin dies and grace grows. Lord, as people consider their own situations, as moms think about their boys, as marriages count the cost of what this sort of this sort of sin and temptation has already cost them. God, give us all a fresh view of grace, of Christ dying on the cross for those sins specifically, for that shame, for that guilt, for that sense of self-hatred, feeling dirty. All of that, Lord, you took all of that to the cross and you came back from the grave with power so that we could be saved and free and whole and different. If anybody here needs you, Lord, let them turn to you right now and tell you so. And let us know through that card so that we could come alongside them and help them grow in your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.